Welcome to the 60th episode of The Goods, a film podcast. Brian, how are we doing this evening? Hey, good. 60 episodes. One for every second of the minute, every minute of the hour. We're cranking up a considerable total. Yeah, yeah. We haven't missed a week yet. And we indeed have a special episode here for episode number 60. Brian, we got a guest, our first guest in a while. I'm really excited. Yeah, who did you track down? Yeah, so uh, someone I've met through online movie discussion and review forums. This is Gargus. How are we doing, Gargus? Hi. Welcome. And Gargus selected the movie that we are going to be discussing this evening, and that is the 2001 musical Hedwig and the Angry Inch. This is not a movie that I was familiar with, prior to Gargus suggesting it for us. Brian, had you heard of this one? So back in 2010 at William & Mary, the theme of the film festival was film and music. And so it was all movies that prominently featured music. And I did not go to see this one at the time, but it was prominently featured in the festival trailer. And the festival trailer is kind of what inspired me to go check out the uh, the movies over there and get involved with the festival. So in some small way, it was formative, just by merit of being included in that video. That's awesome. So, Gargus, maybe you can help us fill in the gaps here. I mean, first of all, can you introduce yourself and, and tell us a little bit about yourself and then maybe tell us why you picked this movie? Yeah, sure, I can do that. So, hi. I'm Gargus. I usually go by the handle Gargus SCP on most uh, websites. You can also call me Gil or Jill, or if you're looking to embarrass me and bring back memories of high school cross country, you can go with G Dog. <laughs> I tend to write an awful lot of movie reviews, usually somewhere between two and three hundred every single year. And I usually just sort of, you know, bebop all over the place in terms of genre and year and focus on what I'm doing, but it's always got to be something where it's like, once I'm done with it, sometime in the next 24 hours, click, clack out like a five to 10 paragraph review on it. I met Dan through Tim Brayton's Antagony and Ecstasy Discord forum. Yeah. He enjoys my work. He invited me on and here I be. Yes, that's definitely true. I enjoy your work quite a bit. The way that you really came on my radar, yeah, we're, we're both members of the, the AE Discord. It goes by alternate ending now. It was previously Antagony and Ecstasy. Uh, don't blame me for going by something I went by for years. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so Brian and I discussed a film a few months back called The 5,000 Fingers of Dr. T. Uh, we were big fans it eventually entered our 15 club. I, I first gave it a six out of eight on our is it good scale. And then I bumped it up to a seven on our correction episode, which we do every 25 episodes. And Brian gave it a, a solid eight out of eight. And so it entered our 15 club. We're, we're big fans of it, uh, Brian especially. And I was just clicking through and I discovered that Gargus had written this really excellent and long review of 5,000 Fingers of Dr. T. It aligned up pretty well with the way that Brian and I felt about it. And I sent it over to Brian and uh, 
I've been following Gargas's ever since, and we we chatted online and stuff. And so, um, one thing I noticed that that Gargas emphasizes in their reviews is you like to write about the the film registry. It's Library of Congress film registry. Is that correct? Yes, the National Film Registry, which the Library of Congress has run since. 1989, selecting 25 American films for special preservation and highlight to the public for on the merit of their cultural, aesthetic, and historical importance. Gotcha. Not only do you review plenty of these on Letterboxd, which I love reading about, but you have a, a thorough blog on Medium where you kind of do a deep dive on these, you know, every now and then I've seen seen you post there. Your most recent one was a really excellent look at The Dark Knight, which I guess, when did when was that one inducted? That was inducted uh, just last year. I have been working my way through the class of 2020 since about April. You also did a really entertaining and enlightening one on Shrek. Talked a little bit about its role in internet culture, which I thought was one of the best overviews I've read of uh, Shrek on the internet. I, I really enjoyed that. Yeah, when I say that Shrek is quite possibly one of the most important and influential movies on the cultures we have it nowadays that's been inducted into the registry for quite some time, I mean that 100%. No joke, no like, oh, I'm doing the ogre ironic thing. No, it's like, I really do mean that I think that it is that impactful on the modern internet discourse. I'll say I saw a video where they converted the Shrek audio to a MIDI and fed it through a player piano. <laughs> and you can actually hear the dialogue played by the piano keys. Sounds wonderful. I, I would say it, it is very much cemented in the zeitgeist. Yeah. Like, I really do not think you get like the modern state of internet humor, and in some cases, the way a lot of people relate to film without that movie and how it's mutated in its afterlife and the public market. So I'm going to go ahead and read the URLs for Gargus's work right now, and then I'll read them again at the end of the episode. And I encourage all listeners to seek out this writing because uh, I really enjoy it. The letterbox is letterbox.com slash Gargus, G-A-R-G-U-S. SCP, so that's G-A-R-G-U-S-S-C-P on Letterboxd. And on Medium, it's similar. It's Gargus, G-A-R-G-U-S dash S-C-P dot medium dot com. That's G-A-R-G-U-S dash S-C-P dot medium dot com. Yeah. And if you ever stumble upon my author page on the SCP Foundation, be sure to leave a comment on if any of the stories that I wrote in high school and college are good. You also write special containment protocol fiction? Wrote. Oh, okay. Yeah, I, I hung around the site and sometime in the early 2010s, did a whole bunch of like foundation tales, which is just like short fiction set in the shared setting as opposed to being like one of the main like articles about the things that they contain so for the uninitiated and of course gargus you can elaborate more because you're obviously more involved uh but the special containment protocol foundation is a collection of works detailing things that are kept in a secure warehouse or or just contained in various ways that are like paranormal 
supernatural objects that cause weird, surreal things to happen. It's basically things that belong in the warehouse at the end of Indiana Jones. Or uh, if you've ever watched the TV show that was on uh, Sci-Fi Channel for a while, Warehouse 13, it's that kind of stuff. Yeah, there were definitely a lot of comparisons to Warehouse 13 back in the day from what I remember. Most of their articles take the form of like reports on how, like clinical scientific reports on how to contain the various objects and people and phenomena that they've come across. And it's a collaborative writing effort. So, you know, anyone can join up and have their stuff posted so long as the community decides it's good enough. It used to be more completely horror oriented, but as years have gone on and more people have come aboard and they've found the old formula getting stale, they've sort of branched out into like any sort of genre story you can imagine, storytelling you can imagine, so long as it slots into the format of a scientific report about how to contain and deal with something really, really weird. That's interesting, yeah. Speaking of iconic warehouses, the one I keep coming back to, Brian, is Return of the Living Dead with Trioxin. <laughs> That's what I was thinking of, too. Oh, yeah. A good warehouse film. Yeah. Gargus, one thing you could know, and uh, perhaps listeners who have hit many of our episodes or know us personally might know, is that something like 10 years ago, I got a job to uh, find a warehouse for a company. And I worked there for a few years, and then Brian sort of took over. It's, I mean, he wasn't the only one who took over. It's been kind of a team spread out. But we, we have this personal attachment to this one warehouse in Sterling, Virginia, that we worked at collectively for over a decade. Right. I was working there until, like, uh, the beginning of this year. Tales of the Warehouse. Well, I'm sure you've got plenty. I'm sure you've got plenty of strange things in there. <laughs> yeah. Oh, every warehouse has got to have at least one, one strange thing, and otherwise, what's the good of it? What's one strange thing from our warehouse, Brian? I think maybe the best one was the the cockroaches. We had to buy live cockroaches for a science class one time. Ooh. Well, in the last couple of years, we've had a dissection class, so we had, like, fetal sharks and pigs and stuff. <laughs> that sounds pretty interesting. Nope. So I'm ready to pivot now to Hedwig and the Angry Inch. So again, Gargus, you can help me fill in the gaps here because I think you know a little bit more about it, a little more passionate about it than, than I am thus far. This is a 1998 off-Broadway musical that then got adapted into a 2001 film. And I think the musical has been revived a handful of places. Yes, and I believe the man who originated it, John Cameron Mitchell, actually started it several years prior to it being an off-Broadway musical when he was performing as an actor in various theatrical productions. In his meantime, he did a drag queen shows, and at one of them, he invented the character of Hedwig, who, as you know, we'll discuss as we get into the movie, is an East German transplant who's not quite trans, more genderqueer, and takes to the stage to tell the audience her life story in a series of um, musical comedy acts that have elements of uh, punk rock, glam rock, you know, Borscht Belt Belt humor. I have no clue if I pronounced that right. And the act eventually caught the attention of his uh, friend and lyricist, Stephen Trask, who helped him formulate it into an off-Broadway stage musical which he then spun off into a um, 
self-directed and written uh, 2001 film that we're going to be discussing today. That's right. And, and Mitchell, John Cameron Mitchell is by my tally here, the credited director that plays Hedwig or Hedvig in the how do you is Hedwig in the Angry Inch or Hedvig in the? Angry you know, Inch? I kind of hear it both ways in the film. Hedvig sort of makes sense for someone who's you know from the German block, but I believe that it is also used as Hedwig. It's sort of interchangeable depending on how heavy she's going on the accent at any given time. Gotcha. Yeah, I think an English speaker would say Hedwig, and the German way is Hedwig. Yes, I believe that's correct. Well, I grew up watching the Harry Potter movies, so I'm gonna say Hedwig for the remainder of this podcast. Hey, you know, the first time I saw this, you know, years before I had any interest in seeing it, I just knew about the title. That's exactly what popped into my mind. <laughs> so yes, John Cameron Mitchell plays Hedwig as the director, and because it's adapted from the play that he wrote, is also the credited writer. So very much an auteur project for John Cameron Mitchell here. Yes, and I was actually listening to an interview with him it's because one of the uh, producers at new line cinema he didn't identify which had worked with him back in the 80s on a film and because the studio was doing really well at the time and he'd heard that mitchell had the successful play going they were just like hey, you know what i'm gonna help you finance a movie if it doesn't do too well so i do think it according to wikipedia the original airing the original, what do you call it, the phase when it was out in theaters, it did not make money. It made, its budget was about $6 million. It made $3.5 million, but has gone on to become a cult hit and is obviously a movie that's still watched and discussed today because we were watching it and discussing it today. So, Yep. Big enough hits that its success has cycled back to help the off-Broadway production gain steam over the years and in... 2014, they actually opened up Neil Patrick Harris in the starring role. I saw that. That was one of my notes I wanted to bring up here. So when when did Neil Patrick Harris star? 2014. Okay, so it was after How I Met Your Mother. Yeah. Okay, gotcha. And I just want to note this because I swear it's true. I was looking it up. A big thing with Hedwig, whether it's on stage or on screen, is that she's always sort of inserting herself into places where she doesn't quite belong. And in order to get that feel on Broadway, because, you know, if you're in a Broadway theater, what you're watching obviously should belong there. They came up with the conceit that Hedwig is actually starring on the prematurely abandoned set for the one night only musical, The Hurt Locker, the musical. <laughs> and I put that down as a note simply because I am going through the 2020 class in the National Film Registry, and without planning that, that's the one I got coming up for this week. Oh, man. Hurt Locker synergy. Yeah. I don't know if it's because I've been reading the volume of Sandman. It's all about how coincidences keep happening, but there you have it. Well, we were talking about that in our last episode when we covered Repo Man. Ooh. It postulates on principle that in the movie is called Plate of Shrimp, also called the Bader-Meinhof effect, that once you read about something or first learn about it, it suddenly seems like it's everywhere in your day-to-day -day life. Uh, you know, the last time 
time before last I watched that I had no intention of doing that and I'd actually wound up going out for Mother's Day with my mom to Red Lobster and one of us had to play the shrimp so you know maybe there is something to Miller's philosophy after all <laughs> there you go classic yeah Yes, they 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 play bills for her. Lock in the musical and includes such songs as "Can't Camouflage Love," "Call <laughs> Me After Call to Prayer," the drone song, and "Your Body Is the Bomb." Parenthetical, literally. <laughs> That's pretty funny. Uh, so, Gargus, I'm I'm curious. Uh, you know, I said pick literally any movie in the world to discuss with me and Brian, and this is the one you came up with. Why this movie? Why why did you pick it? Why did you want to talk about it? So this movie first came on my radar through a, like seriously came on my radar through a site called 366 Weird Movies, which had spent the last 15 years or so coming up with a list of the weirdest movies of all time, one for every year of the leap year. And it kind of stuck in my mind as one to always watch. I first actually watched it when me and my friend Jackie were doing a letterbox challenge for a queer cinema. We watched one movie based around a queer theme for every week of the year. It was actually the first one we did in 2018. And when we watched it, it had a very profound impact on me in terms of like how I conceptualize gender, both as an intellectual and emotional state and how I kind of view my own and I'd say I'd put down the fact that I'm a little more, well, a lot more open to messing around with that in terms of presentation and identity, because this movie did have that much of a profound impact on me back on first viewing four years ago now. And also because it has been in rotation on my Spotify playlists nonstop ever since. <laughs> there, are, there are some bangers on this. Yeah, I'm excited to talk about some of the good ones for sure. Yeah, and, uh, you know, obviously we're going to be talking a lot about the striking use of gender in this film. And, you know, I'd love to hear your perspective on anything that comes up. And I also just want to add my own warning that, you know, I'm a straight, white, cis male. I'm not the most articulate and precise when it comes to gender. So just a warning to you and to the audience, I'm going to do my best to use pronouns and terms precisely here but i apologize in advance and feel free to correct me if i make any mistakes here yeah so i mean my perspective is always that so long as you're aware this is a limitation to your perspective and you're willing to try and open yourself up and learn more there's nothing wrong with being limited especially since you know the conversation around it is changing so rapidly nowadays i try to keep myself plugged into it and even i don't am not you know fully caught up 100 percent of the time Sure. Yeah. So I'm I'm ready to jump into the movie, talk about some of the things that happen. Uh, Brian and Gargus, feel free to kind of add your perspectives as we go along here. But let's discuss Hedwig, Hedvig and the Angry Inch from 2001, directed by starring John Cameron Mitchell. So this movie alternates chronologically between musical scenes that take place in I guess the present, like the film's present tense, and then alternating that, those are typically like the musical sections, like some song being performed by Hedwig and the band, The Angry Inch. And then the flashbacks kind of tell Hedwig's life story leading up until the present moment. Well, Hedwig and the group are going on tour and singing these songs on stage and they're kind of telling the story of Hedwig's life 
gradually moving up toward the present moment. Yeah. And a few things I think should be noted is that while Hedwig is going on tour, her venue is almost always the same. We see it right away at the start of the movie. She and her band have an exclusive deal to be performing at, I believe it's Bilgewater Restaurant, which are a, a low-budget seafood eatery that's always decorated with uh, photos of the sinking of the Lusitania. <laughs> but they have these things all over the country, apparently. There's Bilgewater yes. St. Louis, Bilgewater New York, Bilgewater Chicago. Bilgewater Times Square. I'm just imagining like going into a Red Lobster and seeing like the wildest musical act of your life there. I would make going the Red Lobster all worth it, wouldn't it? <laughs> and the other thing I wanted to note is that the flashbacks are usually framed in a in a um, combination of Hedvig either telling the audience at her show her story between her songs or her communicating directly with the audience of the movie. Sometimes while inserting herself physically in t into the locations which in the past in order to continue to us which fits in with how the original drag show was just Hedwig on stage, alternating between songs about her life and directly telling the audience about her life. Yeah, there's some really interesting things on kind of perspective and fourth wall breaking and like who exactly is the narrator addressing and even some like weird chronological things where I thought it was a flashback and then it kind of pivots to actually being in a musical scene. Made me think a little bit of High School Musical 3, <laughs> uh, the, the, the prom number. It goes from like seeming like it's a the non-diegetic number where they're just bursting out in a song and then it turns out that it was actually part of their rehearsal yeah it was interesting it, it seemed like most of the songs started on stage so like we were led to believe that they were diegetic and actually performed for the crowd in whatever restaurant they happened to be at the moment but then there was one i think that starts with hedwig on a couch in one of the flashbacks and that made it a little more complicated. Yeah, that one, I we'll get to it when we get to it, but I believe that one is meant to be more representational rather than showing direct reality, like when she's on stage at the start of the film doing Tear Me Down. Right. So we see right away on, on Hedwig that uh, Hedwig is, whenever on stage, and, and basically always, you know, from their adult life on, in what I would consider drag, like big poofy blonde wig with a dramatic glam outfit, some exaggerated makeup going on. It's clear that Hedwig has a complicated relationship with gender. That's like an important theme for sure. So Wikipedia uses a term that you also used, Gargus, which is gender queer. You've been referring to Hedwig as she. My notes, I have they, them for, for Hedwig. I don't know what pronouns I should be using throughout this are, but... I default to she, her, for Hedwig simply because for the majority of the film, while there is a very complicated relationship with her own gender going on there, that is what she identifies with. That's how she refers to herself. And I've always found that when it comes to really anybody, not even just queer people, anybody at all, whatever pronouns that they say that they're using at the moment that's what it's best to be using at the moment. Gotcha. They, them, I think might be more applicable towards the end of the film, but I go with she, her, because that is what Hegwig uses to refer to herself in the present throughout the movie. Gotcha. Okay. So I will, I'll try to use that here going forward then. Yeah. So the opening number here in the present is a song called Tear Me Down. 
And I, I just want to say up front, the songs in this are really excellent rock songs. Like these are real ass songs here. And I was just appreciating the, the song craft. I mean, uh, I, I like almost every single number in here. Yeah, again, it's Stephen Trask who did these songs on this one, and it's an impressive variety. I mean, you say they're rock songs, but they cover a pretty broad variety of the subgenres. You know, you got power ballads in here, you got really rage and punk rock songs, you got stuff that's infused by country, you got stuff that really does seem like it could more come off Broadway. There's like, you know, a bunch of other stuff that's tinged by psychedelic epic rock. Yeah, a lot. there definitely is like a lot of influences coming in and... It's really cool to see Hedwig like approach all these different styles with her, her trademark intensity. Yeah, and especially with the opening number because it is one of those hard rock songs and it just opens on Hedwig's most identifying characteristic, I think, in that she is loud, brash, and confrontational, you know? Right. Swipes her arms open to reveal a cape with a whole bunch of Berlin Wall-style graffiti on it. It just goes, don't you know me, Kansas City? I'm the new Berlin Wall. Giants and me down. Yeah, it's, a, it's an awesome opening. So after this number, we see Hedwig in the dressing room afterwards. And we meet Hedwig's husband, Yitzhak. I think that's how it's pronounced. I, I got the spelling off of Wikipedia. They are conversing and they get distracted because on the TV, we see somebody else singing what appears to be the exact same song we just heard. Number one on the charts on VH1, someone named Tommy Gnosis. We learn within a scene or two that it's not a coincidence that uh, Hedwig has a long history, including a romantic history, with this Tommy Gnosis. I think it's worth noting real quick regarding Yitzhak. He's actually played by the actress uh, Miriam Shore in a masculinizing makeup. And it's a pretty regular thing throughout the movie for Yitzhak to sort of be coveting Hedwig's wigs, like trying them on when she's not in, trying to like sing to a more, you know, high-pitched feminine tone when they're on stage. And Hedwig tends to tear out the uh, power from her from his microphone when he does that. So there's a little bit of tension going on between the two of them regarding their own gender identities there. Right. Yeah, I, I didn't realize Yitzhak was played by a woman uh, until they spoke later on, like two-thirds of the way through the movie. I was like, oh. Hold up. Uh, wait a minute. It really speaks to how Hedwig is sort of like, even though she has this, you know, really good command over her own identity, or at least she projects a very powerful image of that. She can also be a bit of a cold, controlling person in private, in part because of what you were talking about with how she broke up with Tommy Gnosis, and she alleges that he stole all the material they wrote together and ran off without giving her any credit. I think in particular, the the way that Hedwig forces Yitzhak to present very masculine, like we're talking dressed like a biker, stubble beard, bandana. I, I think that's also tied up in Hedwig's history and kind of the way that gender has been like a defining factor in the success and failure of her relationships through her years and kind of this is like a defense mechanism to have Yitzhak have from Hedwig's perspective a very controlled straightforward masculine presentation and, and gender identity and that's like part of what Hedwig is trying to control right so not only is you know someone hitting number one on the charts on VH1 with 
Hedwig's songs, but it's kind of part of a, a spiral in Hedwig's life. In fact, Hedwig is now suing Tommy Gnosis. We learn from, I think, Hedwig's manager to basically try and reclaim some money. I mean, that's kind of what it is on the surface level, although it's clearly much deeper than just money for, for Hedwig. This is kind of the the intro that leads us back to the start of the flashbacks, I would say. Yeah. And Hedwig's flashbacks usually have some element of her diary from when she was a small boy in East Germany, which is less a diary than a series of heavily abstracted stick figure drawings that he scribbled out on a roll of toilet paper. Yeah, it's like Diary of a Wimpy Kid. Except even more like impressionistic than that, sort of. The best I can think of is saying it's a little bit Picasso style, but even cruder. Yeah, like stick figures and shapes and stuff. So do you have any context on this animation? Is this something done or or overseen by Mitchell? I am actually not sure. I did look around. I couldn't really find anything. I'd have to assume that because he's noted in interviews that whenever he's doing Hedwig, he's very, you know, hands-on in the design of it. The sort of art style that it uses is probably drawn from something that he came up with. But in terms of how it was animated and who did it and whether he had any say in that, I'm not, well, he probably did have say in it. He was the director, but like in the specifics, I'm not entirely certain. Gotcha. Whatever it is, it's very impactful, especially when Hegwig uses it to explain a bit of her backstory and a bit of her personal philosophy in the next song. Right. Yeah. So the, the flashback starts with, Hedwig as a child and as a, a boy in communist Germany. I guess this is East Berlin. Is that the communist side? Yes. Where after a whole bunch of East Berliners fled for West Berlin, Hedwig back then, uh, Hans, his mother, fled to East Berlin for less freedom where she got a job teaching limbless children sculpture. Gotcha. And, and one thing we learn, it's almost offhandedly depicted, that Hedwig Hansel was sexually abused by his, I guess you, at the time, his father. Yes. Who is, I think it's an American soldier. Is that correct? An American GI, yes. Okay. We haven't actually shown anything. It's just Hedwig is talking about who can she say touched her most as a child. Was it her father? And then there's a cut to his mother sort of berating the man who was lying in bed with Hans and forcing him out the door. Right. So it's all implication, but yeah, it seems very likely that there was abuse going on. And I think, you know, one thing this movie does that I appreciate is it doesn't draw a straight line between any of Hedwig's traumas throughout her life and like why she is the way that she is. But it also informs her personality. But I mean, at the same time, if that's like the first chapter of the past story, it's like... It's a contributing factor, it seems like. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yes, I don't think it is saying it in any sense that like some reactionary people like to say where it's like, oh, queer people are the way they are because they were sexually abused as children. It's like it is a potential fact of Hedwig's life. It is, like I say, sort of left a little vague and up to the viewer. And there is further abuse going on. But I think when you ultimately get down to it, 
Hegwig isn't Hegwig because of any one thing. It's more of like a lifetime of beating and forced around and eventually deciding to put her foot down and say, no, this is me. It's interesting. It's definitely a fine line because, I mean, to Brian's point, it's the first thing we learn about Hedwig's past, but I, I'm 100% with you, Gargus, that it's complicated. And I, I kind of like that it was complicated. Like, it's not brushed aside, but it's also not... I don't know. I feel like some movies that have sexual abuse depicted it, like, is kind of the overwhelming theme. And, like, every single thing is haunted by that fact. And it was just kind of nuanced here. Yes. What I find interesting about that, not to get too granular, is the fact that based on the way that the film is edited and Hedwig delivers her monologue, what impacted her as a boy more isn't so much like whatever happened between Hans and his father and more just the fact that afterwards his mother was extremely cold and uncaring towards him. Right. Which is the last thing we see before the notes to Origin of Love strike up. Yes. So the song that this kind of early phase of Hedwig's life leads to cutting back to the present is this really epic song. It's like six minutes long. It uses a lot of that animation style that we mentioned a minute ago. Um, And it kind of really ties together some of the themes that will define the rest of this film, which is, of course, gender, but also like spirituality and kind of thinking about the role of a person in the world. This notion of duality and how all that kind of ties to romance. And if I understand, this is a retelling of a Greek myth on how gender was created. Well, it's taken from a book by Plato called The Symposium. Okay. Yes, it's a um, it's counted as one of Plato's dialogues, although it's more a series of monologues in which he uses various um, prominent philosophers of his day as mouthpieces for various odes to and examinations of love. And this one's actually drawn from Aristophanes's account about why people are drawn to one another in a bit of a, I suppose you'd say soulmate sense, and also trying to account for the existence of homosexuals in the context of uh, Greece at the time. Interesting. And do you want, I should explain it, or do you want to do it? Why don't you go for it? Right. So it's primarily presented through um, Hegwig's very unique childish art style being projected onto a wall at one of the bilge waters. I recommend looking it up because it's it's difficult to describe exactly what it is, but it is so unique and striking. But Hegwig's philosophy, drawn from Aristophanes, is that once a long time ago, all humans were actually two people stuck back to back. Two sets of arms, two sets of legs, two faces peering out into opposite directions, rounded bodies so they would roll around in order to go really fast. And there were actually three sexes back then, two men back-to-back who were the children of the sun, two women back-to-back who were the children of the earth, and a man and a woman back-to-back who were the children of the moon. And the gods who here are represented by Osiris, Thor, Zeus, and to quote the song, some Indian god, feel threatened by humanity and their potential to rise up against the gods. So Zeus decides that he is going to cut the humans down and split everybody apart. And in Hedwig's telling, the wound from the back is moved around to the front to be the belly button to remind everyone of the price they paid. And now everybody is 
adrift in the world as one half of what used to be a complete whole searching out their soulmate. So one line I wrote down, I think this is kind of spoken at the end of the song, and I, I really liked how this kind of captured it. This is Hedwig saying, It is clear that I must find my other half, but is it a he or a she? What does this person look like, identical to me, or somehow complementary? Yes. So this song is kind of capturing Hedwig in search of something, presumably someone, to complete her. Well, the way that Hedwig behaves throughout the film, it seems fairly obvious to me that she views Tommy as her other half and is basically stalking him by constantly playing at Bilgewaters that are coincidentally right outside the stadiums where he's performing on his national tour. And that line that you were talking about that even comes with, one, a close-up of a tattoo Hedwig has on her thigh of a face in her in her artistic style sort of bifurcated down the middle, indicating that the two halves aren't quite in sync with each other. And it also shows her in bed with pronunciation, Yitzhak, in a manner that's sort of similar to how she has drawn couples who aren't in sync with each other in the past. This whole sequence with the, the children of the sun and moon was my other previous connection to this movie because I took a one-semester philosophy class in senior year of high school, and we read the symposium, and then the teacher played this song from this movie. I didn't know at the time that it was from this film, but I recognized it from then. I've brought that class up a couple times. It's it's where most of my big ideas come from, even though it only lasted a couple weeks. So I, I am known <laughs> to name drop that class. Is, is that the origin of propinquity, Brian? I think that is a more recent development, but certainly some of the things have come from there. Okay, gotcha. <laughs> yeah. And if anybody ever asks you about a Danish philosopher, know that they're going to talk about Kierkegaard because he's the only one. <laughs> yeah, I think one last thing that should be noted about this is that Aristophanes' dialogue is sometimes regarded as a bit of a um, piece of humor or satire on Plato's part meant to contrast against some of the other philosophers' odes to love. So the fact that Hedwig has taken this to heart is like, the reason that she has to be going around and trying to reunite with Tommy in order to make herself whole and deal with all the trauma that she has in her past sort of indicates that it's not exactly a very healthy perspective, even if it is a particularly rocking tune. For sure. So the song wraps up and we cut back to um, Hed Hedwig growing up in Germany and we see that that Hedwig, I guess, still Hansel at this point, really in love with American music. So I guess there's a radio station that plays American tunes for the soldiers there. One other thing I wanted to say is uh, in the present, when we start at the start of the movie, we kind of hear rumblings that it's not too long after the uh, fall of the Berlin Wall. Or that's just something in the somewhat recent past, um, which... I believe happened like at the end of 1989, like shortly before I was born. I think that the movie in the present is a bit further on from that, but there is a point when it is far closer to it for the point of a particularly stinging example of irony. Gotcha. Well, that's something that also plays into this idea of being split apart and then joined together. 
yeah that we get in this song because you know 1991 well after the the fall of the wall there was like i don't know you know glasnost and all of that for a, a couple minutes and then the soviet union fell germany reunited so it was like the the halves becoming whole again yeah well it's even right there in the opening song it's like we thought the wall would stand forever and now that it's gone we don't know who we are anymore ladies and gentlemen Hedvig is like that wall yeah that's i agree definitely a major part of this an echo of the symbol for sure of kind of the duality and the the completion yeah hansel listening to the american and canadian rockers while playing with his head stuck in the oven because that's the only place his mother has for him in the house <laughs> that, that was a striking image yeah yeah singing out to the uh do 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 from take a walk on the wild side <laughs> yeah david bowie who was actually an idiom working in america and canada <laughs> good stuff yeah Oh, there's so much clever dialogue in this movie. I love it. I know. Yeah, there, there really is. And, and like you get throwaways that are really clever and really inform like what we know about Hedwig and Hedwig's world and the characters and just a lot of details that kind of add up into giving a much uh, richer portrait of the characters in the world. Yeah, like the uh, thesis that he read that got him thrown out of university, a big treatise on the effects of German philosophy on rock and roll called You, Kant, Always Get What You Want. <laughs> and, you know, you know, if you try some time, you get what you niche. <laughs> I didn't come up with that. That was from the stage, so. That's good. Oh, yeah, I like that. So we see um, Hedwig growing up in Germany through, I guess... His, still at this point, still Hansel, kind of early, mid-20s, as you mentioned, gets thrown out of school, performing music, but at some point meets an American soldier named Luther. Yep. And, you know, the character's name at this point is Hansel. There's a little bit of Hansel and Gretel play, like following a candy trail to, to meet Luther. Yep. And then Luther after a whirlwind romance, proposes and offers to bring Hansel to America. Yep. Real creepy guy, Luther, isn't he? Is something, yeah, off-putting about him. Especially that one close-up on his mouth where he's like, Damn, Hansel. <laughs> I can't believe you're not a girl. You're so fine. It's creepy, right? Yeah, yeah, there's something off-putting about him, for sure. Smarmy or something. But there's something that attracts Hansel to him. Yeah. Probably that element of the forbidden and never before seen. And maybe just that he's interested. I mean, this is the first person we see pursuing Hansel. Yeah, who's not like, you know, throwing tomatoes at him like his mother does. I think that's a big part of it is like, not necessarily like we don't really know anything about Luther other than that he wants Hansel, he desires Hansel at this moment. He initially thinks he's a girl, then he gets to look at what he's really got down there, and he's just like, mm hmm, well, that'll do too. Although, evidently not, because as you were saying, with um, him taking Hansel back home to his mother. Right. So, what Luther basically says is he'll take Hansel to America, but Hansel has to be his wife. And not only 
does Hansel have to play as a wife, but they apparently to get to have the wedding to allow German to go home with an American needs a full body inspection. So Hansel must adopt his mother's identity. So the name Hedvig and also undergo a sex change operation to become a woman in the eyes of whatever authority deems it so that Hedvig now can go to America. And this kicks off. I mean, I keep saying one of the more memorable songs because there are a lot of them are, are really compelling and really interesting, but they're all competing for the top spot. Yeah. Um, this one's called one angry inch and I think just angry inch, but yeah, is it just angry inch. Okay. Yes. Which describes in some detail that basically the operation didn't go as planned. Hedwig woke up to one inch remaining down there and a lot of blood six inches forward, five inches back an angry inch as described in the song. They did it with a, you know, a back alley doctor and the song starts with like the blood curdling scream from when she woke up. And it's probably the one that's most heavily into the whole, you know, really hardcore punk rock aesthetic of the film. Right. Especially since it's being sung right in front of a man eating at Bilge Waters who is just sitting there at the front of the of the frame throughout the entire song, looking increasingly upset and fed up that he's got to be eating next to someone like this. Yeah, that's something we haven't talked about yet, is that in these venues we get a lot of like reaction shots of the audience and depending on where they're playing like occasionally we'll see a person who's into it but by and large we get the sense that this is a captive audience yeah hegwig is not playing at venues that are very accepting of her or her kind of music but like i said she is a very confrontational character so she is going to go out there and get right up in everyone's face with you know the most provocative and sometimes kind of sexual stuff she can manage. I mean, I just keep coming back to the idea of me going to a Red Lobster and having this performed there. Like on the one hand, like I want to be sitting down and, and eating my dinner. You know, I like listening to music, but I, I can't necessarily say that I blame people who are a little bit bewildered yeah. by what's going on in front of them. But, but at the same time, I absolutely love the people who are into it. And then as the movie goes on, they show up in the in the group of groupies who are following Hedwig around with like these big foam hats that replicate the look of her hair. <laughs> mm-hmm. Including, and I cannot I cannot let us move on without talking about this. The old man from the restaurant when she's performing Sugar Daddy around the time we meet Luther. Yeah, that's I guess that's one song I skipped over. This the the Sugar Daddy song with me, Luther, but yeah. But I can't let it skip it because it's one of my favorites. Like, you know, we keep saying, oh, what well, these are all the favorites. But like, no, this is like one of my favorites. I love singing <laughs> this one. They actually left out some of the lyrics I particularly love, like from the movie. It's only on the soundtrack. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So let's hear it, Gargus. Give us, give us a line or two of Sugar Daddy. <clears throat> so from the parts that were cut out from the film. So you think of that mine? Come true the love of man. Will you buy me that dress? I'll be more woman than a man like you can stand. I'll be a Venus on a classic clamshell, rising on sea a marshmallow form. If you got some sugar for me, sugar daddy, bring it out. I love that. 
We like to get some some singing in our episodes. That's always that's how I know it's a good episode. I'll be a Venus on a chocolate clamshell rising on a sea of marshmallow foam. That's wonderful. <laughs> Brian, there was something you're gonna add, I think, about these crowds of who goes to a venue with live music if you don't know who's gonna play? Uh, I mean, I guess they were there for the food. I I was struggling to understand what kind of venue exactly Bilgewater's <laughs> was, but a, a seafood restaurant makes sense. Well, I think there's a scene early on where her manager's on the phone and she breaks a deal with whoever owns Bilgewater's to just, like, let the angry inch play there, eat, so long as they give him, like, 24 hours notice, regardless what the customers are going to think of it. Okay, I see. So this is not someplace that would normally have live music. This is somewhere that is allowing Hedwig. <laughs> And there aren't too many that do that. The Angry Inch performance is also the strongest negative reaction we get from someone. And my, I was like surprised what we were hearing as it was happening the first time. And this one person took it a step further than being surprised at the anatomical specificity of what we were hearing and starts shouting homophobic, transphobic slurs at Hedwig. Yeah. We, we don't get too much of that in this movie, but this was the one where we definitely see that. And the, it's it's interesting. The band like immediately dives to Hedwig's defense and starts pounding on this loser. Her band and um like every one of her groupies, including like the little old man who's like, you know, you know, he's 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 in there. He's throwing like plates of, you know, fish and chips at the patrons who had a problem with her. <laughs> I love it. Right. But it's also kind of like an immediate lead in because, you know, Hedwig herself dives off stage and sort of enters a bit of a fantasy place where she's slowly gliding through the restaurant. And then she uh, lands smack dab in the trailer where Luther left her. Right. So, yeah, Hedwig's made it to America. And, and as context, we've had used the line at some point. We heard the line at some point. You're going to have to leave something of yourself in Germany, both physically and I would say on a deeper level than just, you know, what was the product of the operation. Yeah. But it's not clear exactly how much longer, but it's definitely not all that much in the future. Again, in in the trailer with Luther. I don't think it has to be that much time because as Luther is abandoning her for some just twink he found, the TV is playing and it's covering the fall of the Berling Wall. And the announcer is very pointedly going, this has been a long time coming and the Germans are nothing if not a patient people. With a very pointed close-up on Hedwig looking absolutely devastated. Right, and... She didn't have to do this to herself to get out of East Germany. Yeah, not only did the wall fall, but at this point, anyone, including Hedwig, would have been able to leave East Germany freely. So, And, and that's just the exact moment that Luther walks out on her so this pivots to what i think might be my favorite song it's i believe called wig in a box yeah and it's just this great sing-along kind of power ballady anthem yeah and it's basically hegwig choosing that identity we've seen in the present all throughout where it's like well if the entire world is going to be hurting me and it's going to be pushing me around and it's going to not being allow me to decide who i am then fuck all of them this is who I'm going to be. It's like, you know, suddenly I'm this Midwest, Midwestern midnight checkout queen. Suddenly I'm Farrah Fawcett from TV. Suddenly I'm this punk rock star of stage and screen. You know, definitely cementing herself as someone who presents as outwardly feminine and is basically on a quest to, you know, 
go out fist swinging against the entire world with the support of her band. I just think really an illuminating song, both specifically for the character and for some of the concepts about becoming the identity that you choose to be, both from a gender perspective, from a personality perspective, presentation perspective, like this is who I am, this is me, and the world is going to have to deal with it. Yeah, yeah. This is the best way that I've found to be the best you've ever seen. That sort of thing. Yeah. It's so lovely and supportive, too. Right. Like, that's the main thing that makes me think, like, even though Hedwig has been abused a bunch, it's not any specific instance of her having been, you know, abused by her father or neglected by her mother or sort of abandoned by her boyfriend or even just rejected in any of the numerous ways we see throughout the flashbacks to this point. It's very much just like the entire world won't let me be what I want to be. So I am choosing to be the most radical thing I can possibly manage. We cut back to the flashback now in the wake of this divorce from Luther. We see Hedwig has started a band called the Angry Inch, and very quickly meets and connects with a older teenage boy named Tommy Speck. Yeah. Although the Angry Inch at this point, despite showing up during a wig in the box, in reality, when she's going around doing a babysitting jobs for the generals in Junction City, they're actually a whole bunch of uh, Korean army housewives, who I wish we saw more of. They're great. Yeah, we... It's a little kind of almost a throwaway gag that these Korean women are, are rocking out and they got the spirit, but they don't always necessarily have the precision of whatever the performance calls for at that moment. It's, it's kind of a funny moment. Yes. And it should also be noted that at this point in the present of the narrative, Hedwig's attempts to um, reconnect with Tommy are not exactly going, what's the word, well. <laughs> yeah. As we kind of get closer and closer to the present and we get not just these songs but little snippets as part of the songs in the present the spiral is getting worse for Hedwig snapping at all her, her bandmates and indeed attempts to reconnect with Tommy who we now have met in the flashback and are now seeing in the present also are are not going well it's sort of showing I think that while the identity she's chosen for herself is very effective at like you know getting her out there into the world and defining who she is it also kind of results in her being a little bit cold and cruel towards the people who are actually by her side because they're not the ones that she's laser focused on getting back those scenes you see her kind of snipping at her band ignoring her manager's advice and or the do like barge into a photo shoot with tommy that just ends badly for everybody there's more stuff with her um, mistreating her boyfriend and him kind of looking at, you know, audition tickets to play in a, like a Filipino boat tour of rent. Right. So as Hedwig meets again at this point, Tommy Speck, we get another song that I think is one of the iconic songs from this, which is Wicked Little Town. And it's kind of, I think, an important one. We see it performed by different people, different, slightly different perspectives. Yeah. This also leads in the flashback to Tommy giving this soliloquy, this like little speech about Adam and Eve and the fruit of knowledge of good and evil. Yeah. Which was one of my favorite bits of dialogue, uh, like in terms of hitting 
just being memorable and hitting the kind of the themes of the movie, but in like a in-universe way. I really liked this little segment. Hitting on the themes and also establishing Tommy as kind of a weedy little dork at this point. Well, he comes from the background of the church. He comes from the background of the church. He's a general's son, and he and Hedwig initially met because she's the babysitter to his infant sister. So when he's doing his little soliloquy about Adam and Eve, like you say, when he's talking about how, like, God is totally not allowing Adam and Eve the freedom they need in order to, like, become the people they're supposed to be, it's kind of obvious he's also just ranting about his dad. That's interesting. I'm not sure how much of that I placed, but I think you're very much right on that in terms of Whenever they're talking about God, especially with Tommy, he's got this, what appears to be a toxic relationship with his father. But it's also interesting that it draws from the idea, because he talks about, you know, Eve being crafted from the rib that's taken from Adam is another echo of that same idea of the souls being ripped apart and then trying to find some kind of union again. For sure, yeah. And it's like, again, it, there is all this heady philosophical stuff, and it is good. I mean, that's one of the big reasons I'm into the movie. But looking over the notes, I can't help but notice it's not here. I would be incredibly remiss if I let it pass without mention that Hedwig first really like gets Tommy's notice because he is trying to slyly jerk off to her in his bathtub while she's babysitting. And she comes in and just sort of like, rapid fire finishes it off for him herself right it's this kind of jarring surprising moment and it's kind of shot in a way that you don't quite know what's happening until you really know what's happening yeah but it's it's sort of playing into that thing where there is all this heady philosophical debate but it's also coming from people who are very much like into one another for much more carnal immediate reasons definitely and I, to a degree, dressing that up with all the, you know, philosophical and religious stuff that they got going on in their head as a means of justifying it to a degree. Yeah. So we see in the flashback, Tommy and Hedwig kind of draw closer. Hedwig helps Tommy come out of his shell a little bit. They collaborate musically. They write a bunch of songs together. Yeah, bands Hedwig's never heard of. Boston, Chicago, America, Europe, Asia. Travel exhausts me. <laughs> Just when it seems like they're really on the cusp of fully connecting, they kind of start drawing apart. And it happens because we see that Tommy basically won't kiss Hedwig. And when it seems like they're about to take the next step, Tommy learns the truth of Hedwig's anatomy. And, you know, this cloistered religious guy gets, you know separates just when they were it seemed perhaps to Hedwig that they were about to start to break down that barrier yeah it's a big problem for him even before then because it's like she at least tells him about it beforehand and they play the scene with her you know talking but the actual soundtrack is just I, I wasn't sure if it was exactly that Hedwig says I, I think I told Tommy my story and it kind of does that and we see a surprised face on Tommy and I didn't know whether we were supposed to take that to be like describing the anatomy or like the history of I married someone in Germany after having an abusive childhood. And Well, given we'd only just, you know, finished up, you know, 10 minutes prior with learning about Hedwig, I'm pretty sure that the bomb itself is supposed to be like she's not, you know, all the way a conventional, you know, cis woman. That makes sense. 
but like that's sort of there in the background and they and she even notes in narration during the flashback that tommy never seems to actually you know hug her from the front or kiss her on the face he's always trying to go around the back where he can pretend some she's something she's not yeah so just when it seems like they're on the cusp of something special romantically and spiritually they draw apart and tommy basically rises to solo stardom using the songs that they wrote together so this is kind of the thrust of the what we learned at the beginning that hedwig is trying to reclaim some money and some dignity because Tommy has taken the songs and become a VH1 star subsequently. And that's at least partially why Hedwig is following him around on his tour to kind of be, you know, in the wings wherever he goes, shouting that he doesn't deserve the full credit. Yeah. There's like indications that the tabloids have picked up Hedwig and are touting her as like a bit of a freak who's claiming connection to Tommy and she's using that in order to get her message out there. Now that the flashbacks have caught up kind of with the present, we start to get some plot developments here in the, the present. So one is that Yitzhak, who I think is Hedwig's husband at this point, because there's mention of divorce at some point, but Yitzhak gets that gig on the cruise and it's an international cruise so to be in rent and i guess at this point also embrace some more of his femininity their femininity i guess it's even more difficult with yitzhak than hedwig because we only really get a, a idea of yitzhak through hedwig's perspective and until the very end hedwig is extremely controlling and insisting no you are masculine right and, and we get this tense little scene where Yitzhak announces it and Hedwig has Yitzhak's passport and tears it up. So basically preventing Yitzhak from actually getting the gig because no passport, you can't go on the international cruise. And this is like the straw that breaks the camel's back or the, the one step too far. And this alienates basically the entire band, Yitzhak and Hedwig's manager, who's been a pretty constant presence here. Yeah. And Hedwig winds up on the street turning tricks. Yep. We get a flashback. I guess a flash forward at this point. Three weeks forward, hanging around the alleyway, waiting for cars to pull up. I did like the shot of there's an alley, and in big letters on one wall, it says, do not put garbage against this wall. And that's where all the prostitutes are leaning. <laughs> They're leaning against the wall that says, don't put garbage against this wall. I noticed that every time too. And it's a very accurate depiction of where she's at at that point. Also just a funny little thing. That's good. Yeah. I mean, more in the sense of like, this is how she, she's viewing herself rather than like a, you know, oh, prostitutes are garbage, but you know. Right. Yeah. Certainly done with some irony, but Point being, Hedwig is at the dark night of the soul right now. And who should pull up but Tommy Gnosis in this elaborately huge limousine. Still wearing that silver cross she drew on his forehead, too. Yeah, that's like kind of his symbol now. And have you explained the meaning of Gnosis yet? Did you say that? I, I don't think I mentioned that. Yeah, so along with the... the Adam and Eve, and it's the tree of... I always get it the exact wording. It's the tree that has the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. So the knowledge is the key thing there. And so that's kind of part of the story and part of that kind of monologue that Tommy has. And so and so Hedwig bestows to Tommy the pseudonym of Gnosis, which is Greek for knowledge. 
G-N-O-S-I-S, I think. Yes. And then he runs off and does his own thing with her because he can't handle her. And, you know, in her, her words, you sucked from this milkless tit the very business week I'll show. Yeah, that's one of the more dramatic line readings that Hedwig gets. Well, yeah, it's saying something. It's saying they're all dramatic. <laughs> that's a good point, yeah. So... We got a limo. The limo pulls up. It's Tommy. And Hedwig is surprised, but hops in. And it seems like Tommy is here to reconcile. He kind of silently, using a Sharpie, writes Hedwig's name on the CD, suggesting that he's offering co-credit on all the songs, which could make Hedwig wealthy and famous, but perhaps more importantly is like an olive branch for reconnection. We kind of get a few phases of their reconnection here. It's cold, and then it's warm, and then it starts to be cold again. I thought that was pretty funny, because it really shows that this is Hedwig's vision, and Tommy doesn't even know what he's talking about when he sings these lyrics, because instead of Osiris, he says, The Cyrus. (laughs) It's almost like something out of, like, Always Sunny in Philadelphia or something. It's like, just (laughs) a, a concept that you understand entirely secondhand. And you're just trying to sound smart. <laughs> yeah. And then they crash. Yes. So it, it seems like they're about to smooth things over. And then we get a smash cut, sort of. Like, they, they look up and there's a big car right in front of them, a big truck right in front of them. And they crash into this news truck. And so Tommy and Hedwig are, are physically fine, but it causes a tabloid sensation. So we get kind of a montage of what comes next over the, the next few days or next couple weeks. The movie gets pretty whirlwind at this point. Yeah, I agree. Like Tommy's career is in the tanks. Hedwig is actually like elevated the superstardom herself. She's performing on like the, the talk shows. I think some of the clips they show from when like John Cameron Mitchell was going around promoting the movie dressed as Hedwig. Yeah, there's one with I think it's Rosie O'Donnell. Yes. And I I think I read that like, yeah, as you said, they edited that in late as he was going around promoting the movie. It's like to, to show the rise to fame. And he even said in one interview I was listening to with him that Rosie O'Donnell was actually one of the more supportive people who he'd gone on to. Like he was on Leatherman for contrast. And while he was rehearsing, there was this voice from the booth going out and saying, don't take the wig off during the performance. <laughs> so he decided to very pointedly take the wig off after the performance. And that got edited out and Leatherman very pointedly didn't shake his hand after the show. Interesting, yeah. Yeah. People weren't ready. Well, they are now. <laughs> yeah, Hedwig is like into superstardom. And then we go into uh, probably the movie's single wildest song, Exquisite Corpse. Yeah, so it culminates in this big performance on Times Square. But I was trying, what did the sign say? It was, some, was it the name of the restaurant on Times Square? It was Bilgewater Times Square. Oh, okay. So it was the restaurant. Which is supposed to be kind of ludicrous because why would Times Square have this, you know, yeah. shitty seafood restaurant? I ask, like, Times Square doesn't have a whole bunch of weird stuff on it. <laughs> we see that Hedwig is reunited with the band and the manager. And this kind of leads into the dramatic finale here. And it starts kind of semi-coherent where it's like Hedwig performing a song in a style similar to what we've already seen but as this performance hits its climax 
the sense of reality that we have really breaks down. Yeah. Well, it's indicated by the name of the song, which is named after the artistic exercise, Exquisite Corpse, where you have a whole bunch of artists get together and, you know, one person starts out drawing a person and then after a few, a minute or so, they stop, another one comes in and starts doing their interpretation and you keep swatching out until you have an entire portrait and it's done up in a dozen different styles and it's a huge, you know, convoluted anarchic mishmash. Oh, interesting. Which... You know, you go with the lyrics to the song. I'm just going to read. I'm not going to sing them. Oh, God, I'm all sewn up. A hardened razor cut, scar map across my body. And you can trace the lines through Misery's designs, the map across my body. You know, random pattern with a needle and thread. The overlapping way diseases are spread through a tornado body and a hand grenade head. And the legs of two lovers entwined. Which matches up with the fact that as the song goes on, Hedwig sort of gets into this very self-destructive mode, starts tearing apart her drag costuming, the lights start seizuring, the shots of, you know, Hedwig with her head at the top of the frame and the rest of her body is composed of, like, you know, snipped up pieces of the rest of the bandmates. Yeah, it gets weird here. But I think, to me, the really striking thing is what you said about ripping off the drag and, like, the clothes and so, yeah. I mean, we'll see in a minute that, that that does indeed culminate to a very wild final shot. But even before that final shot, we see, you know, we've seen Hedwig basically this entire time in in elaborate drag. In very different sorts. Like you mentioned the big wig that doubles the width of her head, but practically every scene she has a new costume, a new makeup job, a new wig. Yeah. It's as much a part of her identity as the way she projects herself out. So to have her, you know, tear all that off and a big display of self-loathing indicates that like this success isn't at all what she wanted. I was trying to to get a pulse on exactly what it was. So you take it as self-loathing. So like a destruction of the self. Well, yes, it's just because, you know, the drag is as much Hedwig as like anything physical on her, if not more. Right. And it's like she's been elevated, you know, to the point where it's even like if you read her body language when she's coming on stage and interacting with the band, if you take this as real and we can talk about that in a little bit, there's sort of like this sort of haughty, I told you so, I knew you'd come crawling back. But just like, you know, having all this success and fame and fortune and notoriety forced upon her, it's still not, you know, making her happy. She's still got all these mixed up, confused, hurt feelings about everything that's happened in her past. And it sort of culminates in her, you know, tearing the dress to shreds, ripping the wig off, pulling out her the uh, lumps in her costume that were serving as breasts, which were actually tomatoes. Right, which is a callback to her mother throwing them at her. Notably, also, there's like in the middle of this new huge seizuring bit of madness, there's like blips and bloops of Tommy on stage singing snatches of a song. I believe that's what you're getting to. Well, I think it's I think it's noteworthy that when Hedwig is kind of stripped down, that she looks a lot like Tommy. Yeah, just without the silver cross. So this came out in 2001, which I think is the same year as... Mulholland Drive, which for me also has like a great bit of two performers whose identities eventually sort of mirror each other, despite them being like different. And there's like some very thoughtful ways that that ends up kind of informing our understanding of this character and the world and the story. And 
I kind of feel like I need to see this movie one or two more times before I can really crack exactly everything that's going on here in the ending, because it's a pretty dense amount of information that we're getting here. Well, once we've run through everything, I can try and give my interpretation. Sure, and I, I kind of have a stab at it too, but... We should probably run through it all before I do that. Right. And then I also wanted to toss out, I think Persona, the Bergman film, also has that as an element too, although I haven't seen that one. But I think that's like the iconic text of dual identities between different people kind of having some sort of collision there. Yeah. I don't know if I fully buy into the implication of it, but I've also seen people compare this against Fight Club. Interesting. That's one of Brian's favorites. Yeah. Could you elaborate a little bit more on that, the connection to Fight Club? So interesting thing is, is that in the stage show, you never actually see Tommy. He's always just referred to by Hedwig in the distance. And there are some people who take the way that this finale plays out and the uh, physical similarities between Hedwig and Tommy when Hedwig is all stripped down to indicate that Tommy doesn't actually exist. He's just like a projection of what Hedwig wants her other half to be. Oh, that's interesting because they are always in the same place. Mm. Yeah. Now, again, I don't know if I fully buy into that because a lot of the stuff we see in the presence doesn't exactly track if Tommy isn't real. But I think that maybe in the stage show, it's a bit more of a legitimate read. That's an interesting. I'd like to watch the movie with that in mind. I think you're right that a lot of the scenes wouldn't make sense if Tommy is just like some sort of alter ego mental creation. I will say, however, before we get on with uh, describing the rest of this, in this moment at the very end, I think Tommy is more representational than literally physically here. Yeah, I, I do agree with that for sure. A couple other just notable things here in this this last sort of kaleidoscopic segment. We get, we have Hedwig finally give a big blonde wig to, to Yitzhak and essentially, I guess, letting go of her control of Yitzhak and allowing Yitzhak to embrace whatever identity Yitzhak would like, which we have seen. We know that she longs for something different. That comes after Tommy sings to Hedwig a reprise of Wicked Little Town, which has been remixed to sort of be a mixture of an apology song to the way he treated Hedwig and just like a way of gently telling her like you don't need to be chasing after some pre-assigned mystical soulmate you are who you are and you're able to just be whoever you want to be without having to attach yourself to anybody that's interesting and it is kind of notable that when he's singing the, the line that's common across both Hedwig's and his um interpretation of the song, and then you've got no other choice, you know you can follow my voice. The uh, actor playing Tommy kind of stops mouthing along to the song, and the song keeps going without him. Interesting. So there's a lot going on here, for sure. At yeah, the and then it goes into that place where you were describing where Hedwig is still stripped down, in just like her boxers looking, you know, just like, you know, John Cameron Mitchell without any of the makeup on. It's in a big white stadium. All her band members are there dressed in white. And she starts to sing uh, the anthem song Midnight Radio while doing what you described with giving Yitzhak the uh, wig. And actually when he dives off stage, there's a fade and he comes back down as a full flush woman and, you know, natural curls, makeup, red dress, being celebrated and crowd surfing across the audience. Another thing we get here towards the end is an animation segment in the style we had seen 
this kind of journal style of this symbol of kind of two halves separated, but uniting into a whole. So it's like takes the symbol and kind of evolves it. Although notably, not initially at perfectly at first, like they back up and they ram into each other and they bounce back and they're sort of rocking there looking hurt. And then they try again and there's this huge kaleidoscopic mix of all sorts of symbolic imagery going across the flesh orb's exterior. And it comes down into a single unified face, which fades back into the new tattoo on Hedwig's thigh as they walk out naked down a dark alley into the night. Yeah, it's kind of like a semi-awkward yin-yang of faces, this symbol that is the tattoo. But notably more unified and whole than the one that Hedwig had earlier in the movie. And this last final shot, we see the music's done. And Hedwig kind of wakes up in a gutter, like a back alley, completely naked. The tattoo that had been the kind of broken symbol on Hedwig's leg is now the more whole symbol. And Hedwig walks off completely naked into the night. And that ends the movie. Right. See, when I should try and get a crack at like communicating what I think this is all about, this big like 15-minute sort of heavily representational symbolic sequence sure let's hear it all right so the way i see things it's difficult to believe that anything from about the limo on is actually happening i know it's a bit of a lame brain cop-out thing to start going oh the ending of the movie wasn't actually happening okay i'm glad that i'm not the only one who is thinking this because but it's definitely like a ludicrously like fortuitous about face for Hedwig, right? Yeah, that she's suddenly famous. And I mean, it's all, you know, springboarded off with a car crash. Yeah. So I, I kind of felt like the the ending of Taxi Driver or something where it's like, okay, this is way too well for things to be going for this character Yeah. in the wake of some kind of violent confrontation. Yeah, and especially since like that big triumphant moment at Bilgewater's Times Square it does accumulate in Hedwig tearing her everything that she built up as who she is into pieces and storming out, finding herself in that big empty arena with Tommy and hearing the um, reprise of Wicked Little Town. And the way I see it is like, it's not so much Tommy coming down from like whatever, you know, grand high rafters he was elevated to in order to apologize to Hedwig, but more like Hedwig coming to this realization that Everything that she is and everything she's built up, it was useful. It was helpful. It did make her happy. But it was also something that she'd allowed to stagnate. You know, she stopped at just throwing up defense mechanisms against the world. She hadn't actually taken the time to heal or confront her ideas that in order to be a whole person, she needs to be with one particular person. So she lets go of that. And then with the whole thing where she's reunited with her band in this, you know, great white arena and lets Yeltsin go, it kind of reminds me in a way, both like lyrically in terms of how it goes musically and what it's supposed to represent of um, the final song off of the rise and fall of Ziggy Stardust and the Spiders from Mars, Rock and Roll Suicide. Only instead of it being like, you know, the singer being torn to shreds by their audience and dying in a show of messianic force, it's like 
Hedwig finally realizing that what matters isn't so much like how she's been hurt and what she can do in order to take all that pain and project it back out onto the world as an act of denying that she's in pain at all, but rather just like taking all the experiences throughout her life, good and bad, especially since a line in the song is paying tribute to a whole bunch of inspirational female singers in rock and roll, and combining that to not so much, you know, follow the old method that uh, that Greek philosophical treatise on trying to find yourself a lover who will make you whole, but rather recognizing that you can be whole by yourself. And in a way, I think it's interesting because Hedwig's gender identity was for the longest time tied up in her trauma in the way that her father and her mother and Luther and eventually Tommy abused her. And in, in letting go of all that and like taking in the entirety of what happened to her throughout her life into her soul and making that the way she makes herself whole, I think contrary to some interpretations I've seen where the ending is said to be reinforcing heteronormativity, it's just saying Hedwig is now down to a completely blank slate again. All that trauma, all those triumphs, they're in her, but they are not going to be wholly, completely defining to the point of like making her a cruel or abusive or vanishing or, you know, antisocial person. It's just going to be her walking out into the night. Maybe not even her anymore. Whatever Hedwig is going to be from now on, that'll be Hedwig Schmidt. And it is going to be something that is far healthier than what we saw throughout the entire movie. And I frankly think that's a very beautiful thing about this. I think that's that's a really compelling take on the ending with a lot of interesting nuance in there. And one thing I, I want to kind of parse into a little bit there about what you said is is one thing I thought about for the reading of this is that I didn't read it this way personally, but I could see how one could read it that basically she achieves this apotheosis of finally gets the fame, the respect of everyone, the acknowledgement of the one that she thought was her true love. And at that moment, she doesn't need to be feminine anymore. She doesn't need to be genderqueer anymore. She can just be quote unquote herself. I'm wondering if like there has been much backlash and like people reading it that way. Yeah, like I said very briefly, there is a subset of people who kind of read it as it being too heteronormative. Like, you know, Hedwig's not in costume anymore. She's not even remotely feminine looking anymore. So the movie is saying, oh, in order to have been healthy, she sort of like abandoned everything she was. And to be perfectly honest, on my first watching, that was something that I thought of as a flaw because, you know, this was back when I was first really getting into like sitting down and trying to seriously analyze movies. And that was the best I could come up with at the time that, you know, Hedwig abandoning the identity and the costuming and the forceful personality she built up was like a way of rejecting all that is non-healthy. And to a degree, it became unhealthy, but only because that's where she stopped, I think. She didn't, like, try to heal any further. It's just, like, I have a shield, I have a personality, I have a me, 
I don't need to deal with this anymore. And throughout the film, we see that continually eating at her until, you know, she's a, you know, completely uncaring person towards her bandmates and the person that she calls her soulmate, even though she's pining after someone else. So even though it can do good for her and has done a lot of good, I mean, we see it does a phenomenal amount during the wig in the box number. Right. But in order for her to be whole, it kind of all has to go and it has to like still be part of her, but she has to heal and start from scratch and figure out what is me, Hedwig Schmidt, going to be from now on? So I don't look at so much as being heteronormative as like, whatever Hedwig is going to be, it can't be, you know, confined into something so simple as an East German boy who had a botched sex change operation and now presents as a, a drag queen in order to challenge the entire world. It has to be something even more evolved and true to whatever Hedwig Schmidt means to Hedwig than that. I agree that, you know, I, I've only, this is only the first time I've seen it and I haven't thought about it as much as you have, but my takeaway was that whether or not this is objective reality that we're seeing at the end, the kind of the realization, even if it's like a flash before your eyes realization is that when Hedwig strips down the artifice, What's underneath is what she was looking for in someone else. And really, like, that is the missing piece. It's not strictly someone else, but something that she needs to find whole in herself. And that's why when she strips down, she can let go of having to need that other person and can kind of embrace the naked version of herself as well as the Hedwig presented version of herself. Yeah. And I, I just honestly think like whatever Hedwig is going to be going forward, whether it's something like what we saw in the film or completely radically different, whether it's still feminine or if it's back to masculine or if it's something else entirely, it's going to be her in a far truer sense than what she calls assuming a disguise. And I, I just liked that it, this ending went abstract and kind of ambiguous and open to allowing you to pierce into the, the movie's themes really any way you'd like and um, yeah. kind of do your own reading on it. So I, I really like this and it's just kind of striking. Yeah, the broadest way I can think to interpret it is, is like a dialogue with Aristophanes' conception of why we love in the first place and how we love. So going into that abstracted method where the viewer is free to engage with the dialogue themselves is probably the smartest choice it could make. And that wraps Hedwig and the Angry Inch, 2001 film by John Cameron Mitchell. So... Why don't we spend a few minutes here talking about some good things and some not so good things on, on this movie, and then we can throw a rating on it. So let's start with some good things, and I'll just kind of come out of the gate here. John Cameron Mitchell as the lead, but just the kind of overarching voice. This is a phenomenal lead performance. Just really... Everything about, I mean, I guess it's like the kind of role you can really lean into, but John Cameron Mitchell does everything with it. So charismatic, forceful, but also portraying 
a, a real depth of character and and acting and it doesn't feel too stagey i mean it is kind of very dramatic but like that in a way that's true to the character but still feels appropriate on film i just thought this was a phenomenal performance in, in the lead any thoughts on john cameron mitchell's take on hedwig i mean it's even hard for me to imagine another actor in the the role even though i know it's been played by plenty yeah it's funny because i was again i was listening to interviews with him earlier and he notes that when you know someone else is playing hedwig he is as absolute hands-off as he can get he does not really care what anyone else does with the character because when they're playing it she's their character they can do it however they like, so long as they relate to it on a personal level and put as much out there as he did. It is difficult to imagine someone else in the part, but like, you know, he's admitted it's hard to imagine anyone else in the part for me, but I put it out there. It's theirs now. Yeah, I guess you, like I could see someone making it their own, but it would just be such a different character and such a different story, I think, if it d- depicted by someone else. Neil Patrick Harris's run on Broadway has the soundtrack on Spotify, if you ever want to get an idea of what that part at least is like. I might actually look that up because that I, I, I'm curious. I'm intrigued. And I've definitely seen plenty like YouTube recordings of like various local productions. Gotcha, yeah. And on top of the acting, I was actually quite impressed with the direction. It's a good balance of like just capturing a good sense of the space and the characters and the world, but like getting in some of some gimmicky stuff that like is kind of requires a little bit more technical precision, but then also just this really compelling ending that really kind of blows up a basic cinematic reality. And for, you know, I don't know how much direction experience John Cameron Mitchell had going into this, but it, to me, it's, the work of an expert crafting this film. Would you be surprised to learn this is his debut feature? A little bit. I mean, you know, just from the sense that of how fully formed his directorial touch and voices, I, I actually would be surprised to hear that for sure. Yeah. I mean, he had been in show business since, you know, sometime in the mid eighties. So he had, you know, cycled around a lot of people and had a chance to learn quite a bit. Mm-hmm. He also hasn't directed much since then because his follow-up short bus caught a lot of flack for featuring um, a fucking lot of unsimulated fucking between him and the various cast members. Oh, wow. Yeah. I did not know that. I've not seen that one. I've not gotten up the courage for it. (laughs) I I saw that on the letterboxed list, but I did not dig any deeper. That sounds like he, he pushed the boundaries a little bit. For himself. And, well, you can kind of yeah. tell what kind of movie it's like if you just look at the poster. I got it up right now, and it's something. <laughs> I actually remember the trailer for that one being on TV. You know, on TV? TV. <laughs> I, I mean, it didn't give away too much, obviously. I didn't know what it was about, but I, I do remember there being short bus trailers. <laughs> um, one thing I'll say is I liked the production design in this film. There were a lot of moving parts. There's like a song that I think it starts out set like inside a trailer and then the trailer like unfolds and it's like the the horizon is broadening the whole time. Yeah, wig in a box. 
Yeah, there was just like mechanical set pieces. And I'm sure, you know, there was some effects work and, and part of it was editing as well. But anytime you got a stage that's moving, it's like you got to have a lot of uh, knowledgeable people putting that together. So I was impressed by that. Uh, also, a lot of the lighting and how stuff was shot was very well done. And especially in the final act, like the last 10 minutes of the movie, it goes really nuts with the editing. And there's, like, intercutting between what Hedwig is doing and what Tommy is doing. And, yeah, lots of stuff going on physically and in the post-production. I think also it's interesting to note how, as in collaboration with his cinematographer, John Cameron Mitchell has this really interesting habit of taking these extremely broad facial movements and making them feel like they've got a lot of subtle implications behind them that's interesting yeah like the characters in this movie do not exactly hold back in terms of letting you see what they're thinking and feeling on their faces but there's just a wellspring of emotion and consideration behind them yeah i mean i think it's a testament to both the camera work and direction but also just john cameron mitchell that hedwig gets so much expressiveness and just character development from facial expressions alone. It's its really compelling. Uh, Brian, you, you mentioned the editing and the ending. Um, did you have anything about the ending that you wanted to add before we uh, closed our thoughts? Because we kind of jumped straight to the good things before you got a chance to chime in there. Oh, no, that's okay. I just want to say with regard to the good things... For me, the whole queerness aspect of the film is just a wonderful part of it. It is, even as it is challenging, like, Hedwig's identity and questioning whether or not just staying in this place is good for her, it is as loud and proud and, like, celebratory of everything that she, everything healthy that she is throughout the entire thing. And it just makes everything about her confrontation against the world and the way she dresses up and the way that she chooses to be like this big, loud, radical figure is like something that if it were divorced from this need to be like basically stalking someone and trying to force yourself back into their lives, it'd be the most wonderful thing in the universe. For me, I, I mean, just to be like honest as a person, it was challenging for me, you know, like I... I tried to take it for what it was and really kind of embrace it. And I, just to be honest, have not encountered all that much queer media that is like that theme is so pronounced. Like I've seen plenty of things where you can interpret it that way, or there's like characters or, or plots elements that, that is, you know, queerness in various forms is, is an element, but this is probably like the piece of media or at least the film for sure that I have seen that really like challenged me to, to consider it and honestly embrace it. Like by, you know, it, I did agree that it was uh, celebratory and inclusive. It, it pulled me in. So, you know, I, I appreciated that about it as well. Even if, you know, it wasn't something that reflected my personal experience, it at least like really put me in the place to, to think about those things. Well, you know, it drop kicked me from thinking, oh, you know, I'm cis, there's nothing more to it, too. Yeah, no, I'm going to embrace gender queer to the point where I like to say it's more gender fucked and also got me willing to do drag, so. 
and I also on on the list of good things want to shout out just the soundtrack. I I really dug the soundtrack. I liked almost every single number quite a bit. So, yeah. Now some not so good things. I I do think there's a case for spending all of this time with Hedwig for the vast majority of the time. Hedwig is so troubled and dealing with difficult things and honestly like unlikable uh for for significant portions i found like dealing with her challenges and her trauma and particularly in the present when she's kind of cruel to the other band members and distant from her husband even though we know that she's the protagonist there there is a certain element i think of hedwig's kind of annoying and kind of a jackass sometimes yeah well that's sort of the big thing i think with I know this is the bad part, but I'm actually going to be defending it anyway. Just the big thing with like, if you're going to take me, you're going to take all of me, the good and the bad. And some of the question is, is that so healthy an attitude to have? I Yeah, no, I mean, um, I think that's true. And I also agree with you that this movie earns its complex and difficult protagonist and narrator, I would say. Oh, yeah. Like, really uh, gets us in their headspace and tries to get us to understand her. So I actually didn't really have too many other not so good things. I mean, I think there might be a case that plot wise, it kind of feels like it just breezes by. But then we also have all the flashback stuff that really adds a lot of depth to it. So, yeah, I didn't really feel like it was shallow. Like, I, I felt like it was pretty rich despite its lean runtime. Push me to say something bad about this, even though it is one of my favorite movies. And what I would come down to is the fact that if this movie were to come into existence entirely as it is now with everything that's been done with like awareness about, you know, trans and queer people and their experiences, Hegwig's background is probably a little too defined by constant trauma, especially of the sexual kind to be considered like the absolute best representation of a genderqueer person. I do think that it earns a lot of the nuance that it pulls from that by the way that it's so smartly written in order to show that Hedwig is less like, you know, made lesser by her experiences and more just rejecting them as something that get to control her at all. But even then, with like all the narrative you see going around from people who are trying to deny that, you know, trans and even genderqueer people in general even exist, is saying like, oh, they're all just, you know, you know, working past something that happened to them in their childhood. If they get through it, then they'll be completely normal. It's like, no, this stuff is part of you and it can inform you, but it's not like the central main reason you are the way you are. I think that's compelling as a criticism you could read into it because you know when you hit all the plot points that is a driving factor in what we know about Hedwig so I, I think that that's astute yeah it's like John Cameron Mitchell is gay I believe he does do drag but he does not identify outside of anything other than the uh, sex and gender he was assigned at birth so if we were talking this as something you know that someone who was in you know their late 20s, early 30s started doing now, it probably would not be considered the absolute best thing. As it stands, I think that this version of the story is 
intelligent enough about how to examine Hedwig and show what's really motivating her beyond the trauma and the fact that it has gone out into the world and been embraced by people who are of that background and, you know, twisted up and changed into all sorts of new and exciting forms that it can squeak its way past on the grounds of this was 20 years ago, closer to 30 when he started doing the character. Right. The past is a different country. Yeah. And it, it's concepts that in public discourse and awareness has been evolving rapidly. So something even 25 years old, in this case, I guess it's 20 years old. The world is a lot different. Uh, and the way that we talk about these things and think about these things is a lot different. Not to say that you can excuse all troublesome representation by any means, but at least when you are reading the film, that's a, a some context you can bring in. Yeah, you know, I absolutely wouldn't begrudge someone who's, you know, you know, outright, you know, trans, explicitly going from assigned female at birth to male or vice versa or any other sort of like more putting themselves out there and being it at all times than I am who would look at this and go, oh no, I don't like this. This is too entrenched in it being about trauma and that just doesn't ring well with me. I'll say that I've got, you know, friends who are across several stripes of the gender identity spectrum who've seen this with me and love it and don't have that problem at all. But I can also admit that, like, those are just my friends. They don't represent absolutely everybody. Right. That wraps my thoughts of not so good things. Brian, were there any other reservations you had on this one? Um, I don't know. I'm, I'm ready to, uh, I think, get to our rating section. Okay. The last kind of tidbit I wanted to throw out there that I learned about this movie before we rate is that I noticed when I was reading about it that the teen drama Riverdale did a musical episode centered around this, like recreating some of the numbers. And I would be very curious to see what that show, which is very gonzo over the top teen drama, would do with this. So I'm, I think it's called, what's the name? The wicked town little wicked town wicked little town yeah yeah i think that's the name of the episode so that might be something i look up sometime god keeps pushing me to be interested in something archie related (laughs) i won't let him i can't say i recommend the show but that's something i saw existed it's it's got its pros and cons but that brings us to our signature section is it good where each of the three of us will give the movie a rating on our podcast's signature eight-point goodness scale, ranging from very not good, which is a one out of eight, to our masterpiece rating, Toward Day Good, which is an eight out of eight. So typically we have, there's just two of us, whoever's not the host go first. So maybe, Brian, you can go first, and then we'll have Gargas give a rating, and then, then as the host, I can go last. So, Brian, is Hedwig and the Angry Inch from 2001, good. So uh, what I'll say is this is a very skillfully made film. The people who were involved were talented and passionate. Like, it's clear this is a passion project for Mitchell. I mean, he's writing, directing, starring. He's he's Orson Wellsing this thing. And especially for a directorial debut, it's impressive. The, the production design is definitely something that... Uh, struck me everything is lit interestingly and constructed in a creative fashion i don't really know that i'm the 
target demographic of this film. Um, but the show is all about broadening horizons, checking out things we wouldn't necessarily otherwise. For me, this is like a high four out of eight. A good-ish. Something that I'm glad I paid a visit to. That's that's where it resonated for me. You guys have talked up the songs. I don't know that this is something I'm going to be cranking after the fact. Um, which is maybe partially that it's rock music largely. I don't know that I follow many rock groups. Um, usually when I'm going for show tunes, it's things that are very clearly enunciated every word. Something that uh, the 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 lyrics are driven home to me. Whereas this was kind of shouty, a lot of it. I, I did have subtitles on. But your mileage may vary. Uh, so let's hear some other perspectives. Cool. Thanks, Brian. And so, Gargus, what would you say? Is is this movie good? Well, uh, hi, I'm the target demographic. <laughs> I mean, the fact that Brian wasn't talking so much this episode kind of makes sense of how he summarized his feelings. The fact that I've been talking so much about it probably should give you an indication to how I feel about it. I mean, I've watched this three times beforehand, and this being my fourth after having rated it on the Leatherbox rating, a 4.5 out of 5 each time, I finally took the plunge and upped it to 5. You two introduced me with, you know, saying, oh, Gargus's pronouns are they, them, and it's like, yeah, they are, but in another context, I'm perfectly comfortable with, you know, he, him, or she, her, you know, I kind of mixed that up a whole bunch. And I do that because in a large part, because this movie just kind of came along and was like, hi, this is your new obsession now. So it's like, it is something that is exactly on my sensibilities for a uh, technical visual presentation. Aesthetically, it's just like, you know, sparkles all across my my eyes. I love every song. I've had them all branded on my brain, including the ones that are just on the soundtrack, not even in the movie. I think it's a beautiful story about trying to move past you know, a lot of a lot of pain that you've had in your past and avoid letting that make you a cruel person who's just getting by without actually improving. And the way that Hegwig gets by even if it does need to be challenged and ultimately rejected in order for the heal. So fucking appealing. Like, I, I've said this multiple times throughout the show, but it's like a big reason why I want to be doing drag now. I even kind of, you know, like in the last month, finally went out and bought a wig and dress in order to do that sort of thing. So something that's had this much of an impact on me, it really has to be a full eight out of eight. Our masterpiece rating. That's awesome. I wouldn't have brought it otherwise. I love it when guests bring they're passionate about and that that are formative and really meaningful to them and thank you for bringing a special one to us yeah i'll um, certainly do it frequently bring in a movie that i care a lot about <laughs> and yeah and so that comes to me and i think i find myself uh somewhere straddling between the reactions that the two of you have had because i as i mentioned i certainly did not identify quite as personally with it as you did gargus uh, I find myself in the boat of Brian where I, I don't find myself necessarily the target demographic of it. I did find myself quite swept with it, though. And particularly, I was kind of around a low six, maybe high five, maybe low six, until the last 20 minutes, like, really challenged me and to to see more into this movie and its themes and everything that it had been leading up to and really how it just culminates in something that really goes out with a bang 
And so I am kind of right on the fence of a high six, a very good, and a low seven. Um, I think for now, I'm going to pencil it in at a high six. This is a very good movie and one that I do think I would like to watch again sometime. And one that really kind of made me think about, you know, things related to gender and representation and stuff that I haven't honestly spent all that much time thinking about. And it is it's a special one. And while I love the music, I really love John Cameron Mitchell in the lead. I, I think he's phenomenal. And I just love its voice and its energy. And yeah, this is a very good movie for me. And thank you so much, Gargus, for for bringing it our way. And I hope you take no offense that we none of us gave it the coveted eight. No, 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 no. It's perfectly fine. It's like I am cool <laughs> with any, any like positive rating. I'd even accept a negative rating if you could articulate it well. But just like my hope is that in coming on here and talking about the movie and getting it out there in this way, if there's even one person listening to this who watches this movie for the first time and finds out that they're in the target demographic too that's enough for me that that's all i mean you already got me and brian to watch it and i don't think we would have so you know any other reach that we have would of course be awesome too so um thank you so much for for bringing it to us yeah thank you for coming we love to have different voices on here and uh this has been really fun and, you know, maybe we'll have you on the show again sometime in the future. So I'm definitely open to it any time. I am desperate for notoriety. <laughs> <laughs> we don't know yet if we can provide that, but <laughs> I've certainly been trying in the last few weeks to share it with some new people. And so we might have a, a new listener, too. So uh, to anybody tuning in, we're glad to have you. And I'm glad to be here. And you know, these guys are good. I've listened to them some at work. You, you two deserve more listeners than you got. Uh, well, I appreciate We appreciate your patronage as well. <laughs> so, Brian, last week I had us watch Repo Man. We had a guest pick a movie today. That brings it to your court, back to regular schedule. What movie will you and I be discussing next week, Brian? All right, so believe it or not, this was the first time in a while that I didn't have some long backlog list of movies to pick. Uh, partly that's because... One I've got in the pipeline, or a few I have in the pipeline, are musicals. And we've been well-stocked with musicals lately. So I uh, I wanted to steer us somewhere new. I've name-dropped Ray Harryhausen a couple times in past episode discussion. I have an affinity for his uh, old-school stop-motion special effects. I wanted to select a movie that I actually haven't seen before. And so we are going to take a look at the last movie to feature Ray Harryhausen's special effects. This was Clash of the Titans from 1981. Awesome. I haven't seen that. I don't know if I've seen any Ray Harryhausen. So I will look forward to, to watching that one. I've been playing God of War 2 again recently. That's got Harry Hamlin and it reprising his role as Perseus. Oh, wow. Oh, cool. How do we do this? You know, it draws on the uh, ancient Greek mythology similar to uh, Hedwig, obviously. Hey. That's interesting. So so that'll be a good discussion. Now that you've heard from us, we want to hear from you. Email us a review of Hedwig and the Angry Inch or any film we've previously discussed. Each week we'll read one of your reviews on the podcast. If we pick your review, we'll send you a $5 Amazon gift card. That's enough for a free movie rental. 
You can send your review to the Goods Film Podcast at gmail.com. That's the Goods Film Podcast at gmail.com. We did not get any email submissions this week, but I'm going to select as our review of the week Gargus's review of the 5,000 Fingers of Dr. T. I love the way that Gargus structured this review. Uh, top 10 favorite things about it, with number one being the whammy battle. I love the whammy battle. And so I, I encourage all of you to go out and, and read Gargus's take on this. And the way that, that Gargus concluded this review is, this is the exact same approach I used to review Citizen Kane a few years back. Draw your conclusions about my thoughts on the film from there. So there you go. It really uh, is a fantastic review. When Dan <laughs> shared that, I said, you need to find this person. And uh, lo and behold, here we are now today. So thank you, listeners. Thank you, Gargus. And I'm going to read your URLs one more time for, for the listeners out there. It is letterbox.com slash Gargus SCP. That's G-A-R-G-U-S-S-C-P. Or gargus-scp.medium.com for the registry articles. So thank you guys very much. And Brian, I'll talk to you next week. We hope you all tune in again. Thank you.